This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And good evening, everybody. Thanks so much for being with us here on Tactics. We are certainly glad that you are here with us in the Situation Room where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thanks so much for being with us here on the program. And uh, this is an interesting story for me for a number of reasons. I'll explain why it's a little different for me than my normal shtick. So, uh, of course, a big, big part of the state of Alabama. We have an awful lot of NASCAR fans here. We are the home to Talladega. And I, when it comes to professional sports, at least, obviously with college football, we're kind of known for that nationwide because of Auburn and Alabama. There's quite a bit of national acclaim going on in the state with that. And, and even some of our smaller schools, Troy, UAB, that kind of thing, they they have some national claim and and you know, people kind of recognize those things. But as far as professional sports, the only thing that we've really got going for us is Talladega, which is seen as one of the the big races in the NASCAR circuit. And so, especially with what's going on in the country right now, it was very disconcerting, it was very uh, bothersome to see what presumably had happened to Bubba Watts, who happens to right now be the only black NASCAR driver. And it's interesting, too, because... I don't know exactly why. I guess it's a lack of interest uh, because I can't imagine that the sport of NASCAR would be keeping black people out. There's been no indication of it. It's mostly just it seems like the majority of black people just don't have any interest in NASCAR either as fans or as people that want to participate in it like Bubba Watts. And so he's kind of different in that sense. Uh, kind of the same thing with women. We have a female driver in Danica Patrick, but there's not a whole lot of interest in females actually wanting to drive in NASCAR, at least not really from what I've seen. And so uh, it's it's an interesting sport in that it is somewhat homogenous when it comes to those demographics. But Bubba Watts coming to Talladega, one of the more famous NASCAR races, he gets here and uh, there's a noose in his stall. There's a noose apparently hanging from the ceiling in his stall, and as you can imagine, this ignited a media frenzy to the point that even our own governor issued a public apology to Bubba Watts for this incident happening to him, and here's Governor Ivy's response to this that she issued yesterday. Quote, I am shocked and appalled to hear of yesterday's vile act against Bubba Wallace. Uh, am, I, am I reading that wrong? I wonder if I got this guy's name wrong. <laughs> wow, that's embarrassing. Uh, anyway, Governor Ivey says, uh, Bubba Wallace in Talladega, there is no place for this disgusting display of hatred in our state. Racism and threats of this nature will not be condoned nor tolerated, and I commit to assisting, I am, and I commit to assisting in any way possible to ensure that the person responsible for this is caught and punished. While the important conversation of racial reconciliation is ongoing all over our country, it is clear that there is much work to do. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that statement in a vacuum. I don't necessarily take issue with the governor for putting it out there. But the thing is, from a personal standpoint... I was pretty hesitant to say anything. It wasn't like I was avoiding the topic because yesterday we just had a whole lot to talk about. And in fact, we, we wound up with several segments on the cutting room floor and this happened to be one of them. Uh, so uh, there was just way too much show yesterday to be able to fit this in. 
Uh, but I was also somewhat hesitant to give too strong a statement on this because history has shown that normally when the noose thing happens, when somebody claims that a noose has been left there and it's a, a black person claiming that someone left it there as a hate crime, what usually winds up happening is it turns out it was a hoax. Either that noose was planted by the black person that's claiming to be victimized or another person, black or white, planted it there even though they're not a white supremacist, they did it to stir up controversy and to get the media's attention, that kind of thing. Uh, this has happened time and time again. Now, there are several symbols that throughout even recent times that it turns out it may well have been somebody that was a white supremacist or a white nationalist or somebody that hates black people, uh, you know, things like swastikas and things, but not only are those incredibly rare, the noose thing, to my knowledge, and, and feel free to correct me in the comment section, uh, I don't think there's ever been a case of somebody leaving a noose behind for a black person to find where we didn't find out later that it was a hoax. Now, it's possible that I missed one, but as far as I can tell, and, and maybe I just haven't run across one of the cases where somebody left a noose and it was not a hoax, the noose specifically being the symbol, somebody leaving behind a noose. Uh, I remember there was one story of uh, there was a noose that was basically fashioned out of electrical wire, and there was a worker there that saw that, and it turns out that one of his other co-workers that was actually also black had planted it. There was another one with a, a woman in an office building that claimed that a, a noose had been left there uh, as a hate crime toward her, and then it turns out actually she's the one that planted the noose there and, and made the noose and made up this whole story behind it. And so when it comes to the noose specifically, it seems like that one's not actually being used by white supremacists, even though it wouldn't surprise me if they did. But normally, at least just based on what we've seen from history so far, if it's a noose, then it's probably a hoax. Now, this is the interesting thing that makes this different. This one wasn't a hoax. It was just happenstance. According to a report by the FBI, and this is a quote directly from their report, the FBI learned that garage number four, where the noose was found, was assigned to Bubba Wallace last week. Okay, so I said Bubba Watts. I was thinking of the golfer, apparently, Bubba Wallace. So, uh, was assigned to Bubba Wallace last week. The investigation also revealed evidence, including authentic video confirmed by NASCAR, that the noose was found in garage number four was in that garage as early as October 2019. So, months and months and months ago, way before anybody knew that Bubba Wallace had even been assigned to garage number four. Although the noose is now known to have been in garage number four in 2019, nobody could have known that Mr. Wallace would be assigned to garage number four last week. So, basically, this is the best possible outcome for this story. Because even when we find out that the, the noose or the, you could use any other symbol that turns out to be a hoax, like the poop swastika. No, I'm not making that up. It is a, a real news story where people accused people of a hate crime at a college with a poop swastika. If you don't believe me, look it up. You can Google it. Uh, this is the best possible outcome of this. Because this is not like the Jussie Smollett thing where uh, it turns out that a hate crime didn't occur, but it, there was nefarious intent, that there was evil going on, that there was malicious intent. It just happened to be coming from the alleged victim, Jesse Smollett, who, of course, perpetrated it against himself to get attention and, 
and all of that stuff. This is the best possible outcome because even that wasn't going on. We don't even have somebody that was planting it to try to make it look like a hate crime in order to stir the pot and to further you know, drive a wedge between certain segments of the American population. We don't even have that in this scenario. It was just a weird coincidence. Now, granted, it's horribly bad luck because you think about it, there are, I don't know how many garages at Talladega, but there's 40 racers, and presumably they'd have at least a few more than 40 garages, but, you know, at least a 1 in 40 chance that out of all of the garages, since garage number 4 just happened to be the one that Wallace was assigned to, that the black guy, the one black guy in NASCAR gets assigned that garage. That seems weird that that happened, that that's a 1 in 40 chance, and that just happened to be the one that he got assigned to. It's odd, but it seems by every indication that we've been given, because they had video confirmation of when that thing was put up, they had absolutely no idea that Bubba Wallace was going to be assigned that garage way back then, since that assignment just came out literally last week. So, I mean, it's great. And normally, it's so weird for me. This story is very odd for me, because normally, what happens is, I'm the guy that points out there's bad guys on both sides. Just something that I tend to, to be pretty good at. So normally what you'll have in, happen with some kind of political story is you'll have one side arguing over here that their side is right, right and the other side is wrong. And then you'll have this side arguing over here that those guys are wrong and we're right. And usually I'm the guy that says, nope, there are no good guys in this story. I don't know why. It just seems to be my style. But in this one, it's the exact opposite. I'm looking at both sides and going, yeah, turns out nobody's wrong. Turns out that there's really nobody to blame. It was just a weird happenstance. But here's the thing. I don't really blame Bubba, and I don't blame Governor Ivey for their reactions, and I don't blame NASCAR for coming out and denouncing this because they were operating under the assumption that it was true Therefore, I don't think that the statement that they made really was in any way inappropriate. Now, I, I take some issue with some decisions that NASCAR has made recently, but ultimately, you know, w their reaction to this specifically, I don't have any criticism for. And so it's kind of weird. So I'm just kind of looking around the room and going like, yeah, guys, keep up the good work. <laughs> Nothing to see here. But it does illustrate the reason that I, I am hesitant to comment on these things until after an investigation does take place, until we know a little bit more about it. Because even though Governor Ivey's comment was in no way incorrect or inappropriate, I didn't disagree with anything in it, and if nothing else, I appreciate that she was showing some condolences for, for Bubba. Because i got to tell you, if I'm Bubba Wallace, I'm the only black driver in NASCAR and I pull up into the garage that I've been assigned, and there's a noose hanging there, yeah, I get pretty freaked out, too. I mean, that's not even like football, because that, that would be understandable if it were football, right? Like, if a football player from one school goes into the locker room and opens up his locker, and there's a noose hanging there, I'm going to be a little scared if, if I'm that guy. And that's understandable, but this isn't football. This is NASCAR, where he's literally the only black guy. And so you can understand why he was a little bit frightened by that. You can understand why that was something that stuck out to him. 
So, you know, there's really no blame to assign here. It's just a, a weird happenstance. So uh, it, that's just kind of the way it is. But I will say that what this does illustrate is the left, you could watch it in their, their commentary. You could watch it in, in looking at... Granted, there, weren't a, there wasn't a ton of coverage for it because, you know, NASCAR's not exactly uh, the sport of the, the ideological left. And so that, but they were paying attention to it, and the reason that they were is because they were salivating thinking that this story was real because it fits absolutely every stereotype that they would like to hit when it comes to race relations and the way that they see the world. Look at all those evil, hateful, racist white people that love NASCAR from the South. They're in Alabama and the only black driver in NASCAR shows up, pulls up in his garage, and there's a noose hanging there. Oh, well, I mean, you can see why the media would just leap at the opportunity to cover that story, because that just fits everything in their worldview. A bunch of evil, hateful, racist Southerners that, even though they're big NASCAR fans, they still wanted to send a message to the only black NASCAR driver that we don't want you here. That's a sentiment that largely doesn't exist anymore. Even back in like the 1960s and 70s when the color barrier was starting to be broken in baseball, yeah, there were some racist jerks that didn't want people like Hank Aaron and Jackie Robinson and Willie Mays to do really well. Those people existed. But even then, in the middle of the civil rights movement, the vast majority of the fans, as long as they were playing well for their team, they didn't care. I mean... I remember, because I wasn't there myself, but I remember my dad talking about it because, of course, I wasn't alive when that was taking place. I remember him talking about it and saying, yeah, everybody that I knew, white or black, was pulling for Hank Aaron to, to smash the record. You know, maybe there were some racist people around that just didn't talk about it because they were in the minority and they didn't want to be ridiculed for it. But even back then, when tensions were super high between the races, the average white person that was just a Braves fan, they were pulling for Hank Aaron. I have a buddy that actually got out of a speeding ticket because uh, he had the radio on listening to the Braves game when the cop pulled up, and he and the cop sat there together to listen to see if that was going to be when Hank Aaron got his, his record-breaking home run. It wasn't, but he actually got out of a ticket for that. Um, by the way, he was a white guy, the cop was a white guy. Like, th th these things just don't matter to sports fans nearly as much as people try to, th to make out like they did. I'm not saying that there aren't people like that out there, but the vast majority of NASCAR fans, like, th they just want to see the race and pull for their driver and see the spectacle and see the wrecks and everything else that goes with it. The vast majority of NASCAR fans are just like everybody else. There may be a handful of racists in there, but the vast majority of them aren't racist. And when you consider that recently NASCAR banned the rebel flag, they keep calling it the Confederate flag. It's not the Confederate flag. It's the rebel flag. Uh, or I guess the Confederate battle flag also works. It was just, it was never the actual flag of the Confederacy. They banned that, and, you know, I thought that was a little heavy-handed. The flag really doesn't mean anything other than you know, we like the South and we like the fact that we're ba that we're from the South nowadays to the vast majority of people that use it for that, that have it on T-shirts. That's all that means. But, you know, they're a private company. They can do that if they want to. But that played in so well 
to the narrative that the media wanted to tell. Ah, look, these, these evil, racist, hateful, backwards, country-fried rube southerners that live around the Talladega area in Alabama, they got their precious little Confederate flag taken away from NASCAR events, and so now what they want to do is they want to threaten the black guy. Because they wanted to connect people that like the rebel flag to racism. That was the goal. And so they saw this as a perfect one-to-one. They could, and I understand, like, if that had been the case, that would have been a pretty easy line to draw. They wanted to draw that correlation as closely as possible, and this was a story that really helped them do it. Only it turns out it's not true. And so that really kind of pops their balloon, but it goes back to the idea that there are some people, and I know that the vast majority of people are not this way, but there are some people on the radical left that are actually really disappointed that a hate crime did not occur. They're actually really upset by that. Here's what happens. Just like a market, I'm going to explain this through economics. Just like a market, there is a demand for hate crime that is higher than the supply. So the demand for hate crimes up here, there's people that really want America to be evil, hateful, racist place. They'd really love for that to be the case because they can use that as a tool to push their political narrative. And so they really, really want evidence of that to come out. They want it to confirm the worldview that they already hold. The actual supply for hate crimes is actually like way down here. It's incredibly rare. And so just like any other market, when you have a really high demand and a really low supply, there will be a force that tries to manufacture more of that to meet the demand. And that's what happens with a lot of these things. Now, obviously, this one wasn't manufactured. This one was just a weird coincidence. But there are people that have done this over and over and over again when it comes to these hate crimes that uh, they'll either paint things like White Lives Matter or they'll plant a, a MAGA hat somewhere. We already talked about the things like Jussie Smollett. We already talked about the like the Covington Catholic boys trying to make that them into racists that were against both the, the black Hebrew Israelites, which is funny because they actually are a racial hate group, and, uh, and the Native Americans there. They try to manufacture these stories so that it fits with their worldview of hate crimes. They want so desperately... For there to be more hate crimes in America because it fits with their worldview and confirms what they already believe, that they will go after it, they will pursue it, and they will continue to try to make the case that hate crimes are happening even after they've long been debunked. If you want further proof of that, to this day, in the Black Lives Matter protest, they are still talking about people like Michael Brown with the hands up, don't shoot thing, even though freaking Eric Holder and Barack Obama's Justice Department found, nope, never happened. In fact, that police shooting was 100% justified. So even then, they will continue to hold on to the manufactured fake hate crimes long after that narrative has been completely debunked because they need it. They want there to be more hatred amongst Americans, and there are people that are looking at this that are genuinely disappointed that this occasion of a hate crime didn't come up because they saw it as an opportunity to push their political narrative, and now that has been taken away from them. Uh, another great example of this that we'll go over real quickly, uh, you remember that video that surfaced just recently of the black guy punching that white guy who's a Macy's employee and just trying to beat him up. And it turns out that uh, that guy never 
according to Macy's, who went over the security footage and looked over it, and, and believe me, Macy's would have loved to have thrown this guy under the bus, uh, they looked over it and reviewed the footage, and they just were like, yeah, turns out there wasn't any truth to that. It was completely unprovoked. The guy never said the, the N-word, even though, like, even if he had said the N-word, that's still not an excuse to just go start punching a guy and trying to knock him out. Still not what you do. You learn that when you're five years old. People that do that are animals and savages uh, that, that don't have the sense that a, a kindergartner has. Even kindergartners can be taught not to hit people just because they call them a nasty name. But anyway, that aside... That's another occasion of people trying to go out of their way to manufacture a hate crime, which is hilarious because that is an actual hate crime. It's just, it's a hate crime against the white guy who didn't do anything wrong that had somebody just assail him for no reason. That is a hate crime, just like all violent crimes are hate crimes. Whether it's racially motivated or not, if a white person shoots a white person, that is a hate crime. Whether race played any part into it at all because there was hatred involved in that crime. So it's a ridiculous nomenclature. This whole thing is, is just absolutely ridiculous. Can we all agree that less incidents of racism, are that that's a good thing? Can we all agree that having less incidents of racist attacking people based on the color of their skin, is that a good thing? This should be something that everybody universally will be able to celebrate. And the truth is, I think the vast majority of people will. I think the vast majority of people on the right will be like, all right, great. You know, no hate crime here. That's awesome. The vast majority of moderates and, and general, you know, just the general population of America will be like, all right, great. Good thing that that wasn't a hate crime. The only people that are going to be actually upset about this are people on the radical left that desperately need for there to be more hate crimes to confirm the worldview that they already had. Luckily, we don't have to worry about them as much, but uh, if you've been paying attention to the country lately, their message does gain traction, and so that's not something that we can really ignore. All right, so we're going to go ahead and go to Will Dismukes. I know I promised that I was going to go ahead and get to his interview yesterday. We ran out of time, unfortunately, so we'll go ahead and air that interview right now. We'll be back in just a minute with Will Dismukes, the House Representative for Alabama District 88. That's coming up in just a minute. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us here on Tactics. Now, I have a special guest coming up right now who has found himself in the middle of a big controversy over the weekend. Somebody that's been on the program multiple times, somebody from around this area. He's actually the representative of District 88, which covers uh, Prattville and, and sort of that area just north of Montgomery. And so we're going to go ahead and bring him on right now, Will Dismukes of District 88 of Alabama. Welcome on to the program, Will. Hey, Caleb, it's, uh, I really appreciate you for letting me come on and talk to you for a little while today. Oh, yeah, certainly, and, and we're glad that you took some time out of your day to, to come and talk to the audience because I know with this story and everything that's been going on, it's been probably a hassle for you. So if you could go ahead and, and just give us a quick summary of the story because I thought about introing it and just giving it to the audience, but I think it makes more sense to let you kind of give the background and, and give everything from your perspective. Yeah, so, um, you know, I, I came out, and, and I've been, for, you know, fairly vocal about not removing the monuments. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was not in the legislature at the time of the Monument Protection Act, but I've been vocal about it 
not just because it's Confederate monuments, but if you really look across the country, it's not just Confederate monuments that they're going after. I mean, they're going after Union monuments. They're going after World War One, World War Two. You, know, you really name it, it, it's literally chances are it's going down right now. And um, but I, what really stirred the pot, I guess, uh, is the best thing I could come up with because I had been on the news a couple times about Anthony Daniels, uh, the house minority leader saying that he wanted to defund Confederate Memorial park. Mm-hmm. I came out and, um, you know, said, obviously on the news that I wasn't for it. Well, all was pretty quiet until the, the Democrat, the Alabama democratic party came out with a fundraiser flyer and they mentioned me in it. Uh, but it had a picture of stone mountain Georgia on it. So I made a Facebook post making fun of their flyer and I, a hundred percent honesty. If under the leadership of, of Chairman uh, Latham, if the Republican Party used a picture from Georgia to raise money in the right. state of Alabama, you can pro- I can promise you, I would have commented about it. Right. And I so mean, I, you know, I, yeah, yeah, go exactly. Ahead. No, I was just going to say, of course, that's that's just a goofy news story. Yeah, and so I was like, ha ha. The Democratic, the Alabama Democratic Party is using a picture from Georgia to raise money in Alabama. I said, uh, and I'm honored that they would mention me in their flyer, uh, and we can move the state forward without erasing the past. That's the end of the story. Less than two hours later, Mr. Perry's released this statement, basically saying that I'm pro-slavery, that I'm an active Confederate. Uh, you know, basically, I, I guess like I'm still a Confederate soldier, whatever. And um, you know, and they they come after me full force, and you know, then I have people call me a racist and a bigot you know, anything else under the sun that you can think of. The most disappointing thing, and I'll let you maybe ask a question or two, is the fact that they brought my wife and child into it. Yeah, I, there was a picture on my personal Facebook page, not my representative page, but my personal page of my uh, me, Amber, and Pratt in front of, um, it was Confederate Flag Day two years ago at Confederate Memorial Park, and mm-hmm. I was standing in front of the U.S. flag, the Alabama, the state of Alabama flag, third national confederate flag and the confederate battle flag mm-hmm. but you know i don't really mind what anybody says or does to me it does sort of bother me in the political climate that we have today that you would bring a picture of my wife and child into the mix so yeah th- those are really two completely separate issues for me because of course uh it doesn't really matter what the story is on the one hand i'm always going to be against doxing and trying to bring people's families into it uh, that that's just so beyond the pale to me um even when it happens to people that i dislike there were people for example that were trying to dox the uh a couple of the kids from the parkland shooting there in florida well I certainly didn't agree with the political stances of those guys, but I also didn't think people like David Hall got to have people like protesters showing up to his house in the middle of the night to terrorize his family. Like just because I disagree with the guy doesn't mean that I want to put his family on display and and make his family a target. That's just so far outside the bounds of of normal uh, civil procedure and, and a civil society that it just, it shouldn't even be talked about really. It is. And Everything that we have today is on the Internet. I mean, if you want to find my address, if you want to get my phone numbers, if you do any research, you can come up with it. Sure. And uh, and when you start showing pictures of my wife and child, you know, it does concern me um, and, you know, kind of upsets me a little bit. And then he's talking about com- coming together to move the state forward. And yet in the same sentence or in the same paragraph, he calls me little Will and makes these derogatory, sarcastic comments 
and you know that's no way to get the to that's no way to get somebody on board to work with you. You know, I don't really care what you nickname. I've been called a lot worse than Little Will, but uh, sure. <laughs> you know that. I mean, I am a sitting state representative, and and um, you know to to tell me that I need to work with you to go forward, and then you sit there and and, and use sarcasm in the way that he did it. That that's just not going to fly. Well, I can say this generally speaking as somebody that that teaches debate and was a debater myself. Typically, when somebody resorts to personal attacks, it's because they can't win on the argument and they realize that. So they're trying to distract by using some kind of ad hominem uh, strike. And and that seems to be the case that was going on here. Um, Just out of curiosity, though, I know that you have some personal history uh, of this. What is your family history with the Confederacy? Yeah, so I've got multiple great grandfathers on both, you know, my my mainly my dad's side, but through my great through my grandfather and my grandmother, mm-hmm. uh, that their their grandparents were. I had multiple grandfathers that were uh, in the Confederate States, and uh, you know fought for the you know fought for the South. One uh, was in the forty sixth Alabama. Uh, another one was captured at Fort Morgan. And, um, I had one other grandfather that, um, he was wounded, but, but he hung in there for, for, for the rest of the war. Um, uh, he was up in the Virginia area. So I've got a lot of family ties to the South. I grew up, I grew up on a plantation that we've owned since the 1830s. It's been in my family's name that, um, you know, is just, it's, it's been in my family forever. And, Mm. you know, I used to find stuff where the old, uh, houses were and, and from marbles to china doll heads i mean you name it i, I found it out there uh civil war relics it was a camp during the war you know and and so i grew up just enamored in in the history of our country and the history of the south and you know it's it, so it's it's all really in a sense i guess you could say near and dear to my heart every every bit of it the good and the bad Right, and, and that's one thing that I think that there's a bit of a disconnect here because uh, your connection to your family here in the South w- would be that, and, and of course some of it fond, um, and, and some of it probably not. I mean, in my own family yeah. history, not in Alabama, but in Georgia, I had people that fought for the uh, for, for the Confederacy, and, and I even have a couple that were slave owners, and I actually found yeah. that out through research, and of course I don't condone that, um, right. but... It is so ridiculous that I think the standard that we've reached, and you actually kind of alluded to it in going through this whole story, is what we've basically done is made the default of every person, representative, public figure, and unfortunately some that even aren't in the, the public sphere, that you're assumed to be, especially if you're a, a generic Christian straight white guy from the South, you're assumed to be a racist until you can prove otherwise. And that's a ridiculous standard to set. Yeah, it, it it definitely is. You know, it's, if you have a Confederate flag in a picture, if you have one in your house, then automatically you're you're you know you're this white supremacist bigot that that you know hates all black people, and it, it's really a shame because it's not for me in my life and for my family, and you know it's not that way at all. I mean, we have love for all people of all colors, all backgrounds, and um, and you know it's just disappointing when all I'm doing is standing up to say, hey, I don't want our history lost or erased or changed by the revisionists that are that are at hand right now. And, you know, it's so much bigger. It is so much bigger than a Confederate monument. You know, it's it's all the monuments. I mean, I, you wake up and read Fox News this morning and they're tearing down Teddy Roosevelt. They're getting ready to tear down Teddy Roosevelt statue right. in, uh, in New York. I mean, 
the day before that it was George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Uh, it, right, it Christopher complete, Columbus. Uh, yeah, even Columbus going down everywhere. Even monuments of Lincoln and uh, yeah. they've defaced yeah. World War Two monuments. Uh, World War One, you name it. There's one that actually defaced an entirely black regiment in the in the That's military right. in the Union Army. And that and that was in Minnesota. Yeah, they've they've taken down yeah. statues of Grant. Who again, if they knew their history, Grant was the guy on the Union side fighting against Lee. So it just and, it yeah. is ridiculous. If Grant hadn't, if if Lincoln hadn't put Grant over over the Union Army, then the outcome probably would have been completely different because Grant actually went on the offensive because he knew that they had the numbers of people that the South didn't have and could overrun them. You know and uh, so right. if it wasn't for Grant, things probably would have looked a whole lot different. And, and they go and they, you know, San Francisco tears his monument down. And that's what I'm trying to protect is not just one specific set of monuments. It's all of them, in, including Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King. You know, I mean, because it, it wouldn't be the same if all of a sudden, you know, everybody was going after, uh, you know, the civil rights activist monuments as well. And, and I want to protect those because that's part of our history. I mean, that's part of the state of Alabama. That's part of our nation's history. Well, and that's the thing that really grinds my gears, too, is that a few years ago, really back in 2015, when this uh, when this debate really sort of reached ahead, and I was talking about it a lot on my show at the time as well, uh, the argument was, well, this is erasing history, and it won't stop here. It'll, they'll be going after Jefferson. They'll be going after Washington. We were routinely mocked for that, and now it's every day. We have a, a story of a new person that has no connection to the Confederacy whatsoever, them tearing down, defacing, or removing statues of those people. And, uh, you know, we, we've got to be super careful here because uh, this is the reason that I, I sort of am an absolutionist on this. You, you just keep yeah. the history, you, you present it as fact, you, you tell the truth, and then let the chips fall where they may. And that does not seem to be the mantra of a lot of the people that are calling for the tearing down of monuments. At least somebody that specifically said, okay, we just want to get rid of Grant and Lee and, or sorry, we just want to get rid of, of Lee and basically anybody that fought the, yeah. for the Confederacy. I still think that that's an, an incorrect position to take, but at least I understand where they're coming from. One of the things that upset me the most on that, on that note when uh, Minority Leader Daniels came out and said that he wanted to defund the park, right, was that uh, excuse me that we're sitting here trying to actually get this the statue down a mobile of Admiral Steam uh, of Admiral Seams. We're right. trying to get it brought up to the Confederate Memorial Park. We're looking at like the Lynn Park statue, multiple other statues, and we're trying to figure out you know, monuments how to how to get them to Confederate Memorial Park. How to make sure that that they uh, are not, you know, just put away in a warehouse to collect dust, or they just disappear. Mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to get them there, and then all of a sudden he's like, "Well, let's defund the park." Well, and, and that's it, that was one of the things that I thought was ridiculous. I actually did a segment on that whole thing because I grew up in Marbury. Like I, I yeah, went to the yeah. park many, many times, multiple times a year, most of the time throughout my entire childhood. My my church had dinners there, everything. Uh, by the way, with with black and white people that went to my church, going to that park and enjoying the scenery and everything. Uh, but anyway, it's so ridiculous because you'll remember that for the longest time, the talking point when we were talking about removing the monuments, removing the flag, everything, the, the talking point from the left was, well, they belong in a museum. In fact, that's what President Obama said, that they should be taken down and put in a museum. 
Now they're talking about getting rid of the museums. Yes. So like, where does it stop? I was, uh, I was talking to somebody earlier and they said, well, one concern that I have is they said, if we take it and we put a Confederate monument in Mobile and the history museum in Mobile and a field trip goes there and a kid goes home and he tells his mom, Hey mommy, I saw a Confederate monument at the Mobile you know, I'm, I'm probably call, incorrectly pronouncing the. Mo- I don't know the name of the Mobile, you know, their Museum of History down there. But sure. hypothetically speaking, they they go down there and they come back home and they tell that they saw a Confederate monument. And well, all of a sudden, the mom gets mad and goes, and now there's a push to defund or dad uh, to defund the Confederate monument in Mobile. I mean, the Confederate uh, the History Museum in Mobile, and it's like, where does it stop? So. If we all, if we did bring one thing that I'm I'm really thinking about bringing forth is if a city, I think the monuments should stay where they are. But if a city is is bound and determined to bring the monument down, why not put a bill together uh, or an amendment to the uh, to the current monument protection bill that says a city if they take it down they're responsible for the cost of taking it down, the cost of movement moving it to Confederate Memorial Park and the cost of erecting it there on the park at wherever the park decides that it fits best. At the end of the day, that monument will be there to be preserved for life, and it will be viewed for life for those who want to go and see it. And also, it's probably going to cost $25,000 or more when you talk about transporting it and re-erecting it after taking it down. And so... In a sense, they're still fine. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, the thing is, and, and you and I, I think, have never talked about this specifically. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first time you and I have, have come yeah. up with this. But I actually oppose the the act uh, that the state has to basically grant permission to a municipality to remove it. Um, you know, just because I'm a local control guy and a federalist. Right, right, right. Um, but at least something to that effect is in... The thing that bothers me about the system that we have now that Attorney General Marshall has basically put in place, and I get it, Attorney General Marshall's just trying to follow the law and doing his job. I don't blame him for that. Um, but the the way that we've done is we've basically sold the the community's autonomy back to them. In other words, we're like, well, you can't make your own decisions about what goes up in your own parks and your own public spaces. Well, you can if you pay us a, a fee for it. I yeah. think at least what you're talking about takes a effort to preserve the history it gives the community some accountability and, and they have to think about it and, and sort of, uh, you know, contemplate that. I still kind of am, am, you know, hesitant to say that that should be something that is a requirement, but um, at least creating a system similar to that where they know that they have a space where it can go, that might actually take a little bit of pressure off of them. Yeah, the, the, to me, the, the whole problem is all of a sudden if everybody just starts putting everything down. And- right. Um, you know, I, I completely, you know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, am a hundred percent behind the monument, you know, protection bill. The tough thing though, is when I turn right around and we're talking about being a conservative, you know, it's like, well, you're giving the state, you know, complete control, um, of basically saying like, you know, it's wrong or right to remove it. Mm. But because of what's going on right now, I'm really thankful for it. But I do think if, Look, if $25,000 to most cities in the state of Alabama at the end of the day, that's not very much money. And if they want to bring it down, they're going to bring it down. And if they're going to take it down, 
we need to make sure that it's going to go somewhere that it will at least be put back up. Birmingham's monument from uh, Lynn Park is going to go to a field. It's crated up. It's going to go to a random field, and it's going to sit there until they can figure out exactly what they can do with it. Because nobody really knows right now exactly what's going to happen, but they don't want it to just go to a warehouse. And that's, you know, Mobile's talking about putting it in, in a museum down there. What happens when somebody complains about the museum, as I stated earlier? You know, and, and why not get it somewhere? The state currently funds uh, with a small percentage of the mill tax. It's only 1% of right. one mill of a six mill tax. Why not get them there where, like, you can't say that you went to Confederate Memorial Park and were offended because there was a Confederate monument there. I mean, the name is in the park. Right. You you would think that someone that were triggered by that would have the good sense not to visit the Confederate Memorial Park, you would hope. Yeah. Um, If you're going to get upset, like, how about just don't go? Right. I mean, but but that's true of anything in Alabama. Like, I don't know. I'm sure that you've been to this at least once. The uh, museum that's only like three or four years old in the State Archives building, like that's a, a fantastic facility. And yes, it, yes, it yes. does have a section because this is part of Alabama's history. It has a section on the Civil War talking about, uh, uh, you know, our role in that. And uh, it, it shows the good and the bad. It shows the things that were going on in the slave trade. And it also shows the things that were going on uh, you know, in, in recent times, it shows things like the civil rights movement. And so it shows the whole thing, which is what history is supposed to do. And that's yeah. the thing that I think a lot of people are, are really not realizing here. Let's just get rid of all the bad parts of history and keep what we like. And the problem is there's always going to be somebody that's offended by some portion of any time period that you're going to come in contact with. I mean, for Pete's yeah. sake, we're, we're censoring Friends episodes now because the 90s weren't woke enough. I, I think we can find some problem uh, with the new yeah. standards with any era in history, if that's the case. Yeah, I mean, one day, I don't know whether it's 50 years, 10 years, or 150 years, they're going to look back and they're going to say, what in the world in, <laughs> in 2020 were Will and Caleb thinking? Like, they must be awful people or, you know, the society in general must be awful people because, you know, like, I don't know, they, they got in the shower every day. Like, you know, I, I mean, who knows? Right. And um, we're looking back in the 90s, the 80s. You know, we're going back two, three hundred years. And, and uh, it just really, it's just really upsetting because it, it, it's, it's really a revisionist takeover, in my opinion. I mean, it's, that's well, why some people have been getting upset about the communists. But if you really mm-hmm. look at what, when communist takeovers have taken place in countries, what did they do? They went after the the past. They went after the things that were being taught, and they completely changed them and rewrote them. They burned the books. They tore down them statues, and and uh, you know it was a complete altar of thinking. Well, and and we are seeing the same thing play out here. One thing I did want to ask you, Will, though, because. You and I have talked a lot in in actualities, which is, you know, I I think appropriate for the subject matter. Um, But there are going to be people out there that regardless of the facts, regardless of history, even when they look at somebody that's saying, hey, let's just preserve all of it and take the good and the bad. There's still going to be some people and, and probably people in your district that feel that you no longer represent them because of your stance on that. What would your message be to that person that feels a little bit um, disenfranchised or doesn't like the fact that you have a, a picture of you and your family in, in front of a, a rebel battle flag? 
Well, I think for a lot of people, you know, the one thing that I want to answer that I was accused of being pro-slavery is in no way am I pro am I pro-slavery. You know, in no way do I think that it's okay or supported, but that I still represent you. All I'm doing is trying to make sure that that the past and the heritage of of our state and of our country is not erased, and that doesn't just apply to the time between the war between the states. I mean, it's all time periods of our state. It's protecting. Uh, some of the, the many monuments that are placed in Selma, Alabama, for instance, and it's also protecting those that are beside our courthouses uh, in all 67 counties, you know, in, in Alabama. And it's, it's so that we can learn and that we can work together in moving forward so that we don't take a step back. And in my opinion, we have really taken a step back in time. I think we have set ourselves back 50 years at the very least, maybe 60 and where we are today as far as working together and getting along. And, and, um, and it is a, uh, a upsetting and, and disappointing time. Yeah, and there was one other thing that I wanted to ask you about because uh, I think you and I differ a little bit on this, so I just wanted to yeah. kind of get an idea on this. <laughs> I saw a post that you made the other day on the, and I know you're going to know immediately when I talk about it. Uh, I'll bring this graphic up here. Uh, it's from the uh, a story about the SEC essentially boycotting and, and other conferences doing the same, anything from the state of Mississippi until they changed the flag. And yeah. uh, the statement that you made here is, as a landowner in Mississippi, I feel that the SEC commissioner needs to stick to uh, ensuring football is played this fall and stay out of the issues with the flag in Mississippi. So one thing that I, I wanted to bring up there. Yeah. Um, just, just to ask, uh, do you really think that the, the flag in Mississippi, uh, should remain the way that it is, or were you just giving commentary on it's inappropriate for the SEC commissioner to make a statement about that? So I view the flag of Mississippi, uh, really almost as if I view the same as the monuments that we have. I think the flag of Mississippi needs to remain the same. I don't think it needs to change. Um, I think it needs to be there, it's been there, and I think it needs to stay. But hmm. my question to the SEC commissioner, who I wish would listen, is if you comment on a flag, and a person posted, that's a dear friend of mine, posted on my Facebook page about this very thing, why don't you get involved about abortion? Why don't you get involved about all the, all the matters that take place day in and day out in our states and our country that completely go against god and country but then all of a sudden you jump in there about a flag why not if you're going to go that route why not get involved in all of it no i i agree completely and and my response to this because i don't know if you've seen this but there's actually been an update to this story conference usa actually did the same thing today um so my response to this was actually a little bit different than yours <laughs> because i actually think based on the the history that i've done the research that i've done the Mississippi state flag probably does need to be updated. I, I understand preserving monuments to history. You and I are in complete agreement on yeah. that. But, you know, when it comes to the state flag as being something that represents the whole of the state, I, I think it's probably time for an update and probably shouldn't include the uh, the battle flag there as a part of it. That's just my personal opinion. I'm yeah. an Alabama yeah. guy, so it doesn't matter. But yeah. ultimately, regardless of how I feel about that, the idea that a guy that runs... Uh, college athletic events 
should have a say in this and try to, you know, strategically punish people that he doesn't agree yeah. with. That's just silly. Yeah, it's it's very silly. And at the end of the day, like it, it to me, uh, uh, Rich Anderson said it best. Like it's really a virtue signal, and I'm not making fun because really the only SEC championship deal that that the uh, college bait that the SEC has a claim is you know the SEC championship in Hoover. Mm-hmm. But um, really, what what SEC championship deal are you going to threaten Mississippi with? Right, exactly. <laughs> you know I mean? Yeah, so I like, mean, woo-hoo. no no offense to our neighbors to the west, but you guys just yeah. don't host any right now. Yeah, we're 49th or 50th. I mean, you know, like, we still do hang on to the baseball SEC championship, so tongue-in-cheek there. But what are we going to do when they come after the state of Alabama flag, Caleb? See, that's another thing. I've heard people say exactly the same thing and say that it's uh, basically we designed it to be a – a shadow image of the rebel flag, which is not true. It's actually based off of St. St. Andrew's cross. Cross. Yeah. That's right. Which is like one of the oldest flags in existence. So it has nothing to do with the Confederacy, but people have already said that we have to change our flag. And so uh, I I don't have a problem with, and I think the state of Mississippi probably should update theirs, but you're right. that The problem is, and, and this is the issue that you have when we have these debates the problem is the other side is not arguing in good faith because the second that you capitulate and do the, the quote-unquote reasonable things, which most people would at least see the argument for, they immediately start coming out after Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and everything else. And so that's the reason that there's so much animosity on this is because we already know going into this fight that the other side is not arguing in good faith, and that's why people are hesitant to really even give an inch, in my opinion. Right. That's right. I mean, we, we, we're at a point, I, I had a, and I, I kind of close up on this. Sure. A, a man has been posting back and forth with different people arguing on my Facebook posts. It's like, at, I don't know, 1,500 reactions right now and <laughs> like 600 shares about my official statement. There's a man that's been commenting on there, and if I had to describe him, like, I would, I always thought he was really actually a Democrat. I mean, he may be. Um if you classified him as a Republican, he would be like a, a, a far-left Republican, not even on the moderate side. Okay. And uh, that, that's me judging. And I'm judging not in a negative sense, but just on me kind of watching what you know he posts and what he does. He told someone that was going back and forth about this whole issue of monuments and Confederate flag, me being a racist and, and all that. And he said, we're growing tired He's like, every time we give an inch, it's not good enough. He's like, if we give a foot, it is not good enough. If we give a mile, it is not being good enough. He said, the people of the nation are growing tired. And when I saw him post that, I really realized where I think that we are as a country, not as a state of Alabama, not as District 88, but as a country, mm-hmm. I think that people are beginning to, whether you want to call it the silent majority or whatever you want to call it, I really think we're at a point that we are really growing tired and we're getting fed up because there is no compromise. And that's, I was getting back to your point about the standstill. Mm-hmm. There literally is not there. There is no monument that is enough. There is no law that is enough. There is nothing that is enough. So what are we going to do going forward? 
No, I think you're absolutely right. And that's something that's hard for guys like you and me to gauge because, I mean, you and me, we're neck deep in politics every single day. That's right. Oh, every day. Um, but, but the average person I'm even seeing coming out and expressing this kind of sentiment that you're talking about, that they're just exhausted by the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that a lot of people, at least this has been my experience, you can tell me if you've experienced anything different, uh, my experience is a whole lot of the people that kind of follow politics occasionally, maybe watch a couple news segments a month, if that, um, they're kind of going with, okay, well, well, let's capitulate uh, because they haven't been here the whole time. They just sort of showed up for the, you know, the, the last five minutes of this whole, um, you know, episode yeah. that's going on in our country right now. They're like, okay, let's capitulate. Let's just give them what they want. And then when they do give them what they want, they're like, oh, well, that didn't work. You guys are just as angry at us as you were yeah. before. Yeah. And and so I'm even seeing some of the, you know, the, I, I hate to call them this because it sounds derogatory. I don't mean it that way. But the low information voters that don't really pay attention to this stuff all the time, they're kind of coming into this and realizing how unreasonable some of these arguments are. And I, I think maybe that that winds up moving the ball a little bit. But right now, it, it does seem to be at that stalemate. Yeah. I mean, it, we, we're at a point that, it, it um, in my opinion, it is a sad state. I mean, we're – I thought we were past a lot of the things that we're, we're working towards. I, I, maybe I'm ignorant, but I, I never grew up – thinking about racial inequality i never grew up you know i I, even in in the days most of my life when i went to public school that i looked at anybody that was black and thought them of any different than me i i i I tell you that with the truth the men that i have worked with and that work for me now that i'm a company owner like my favorite installer is a black man from selma Mm. i mean he he is a friend like he knows things about me that nobody else knows that my best friends don't even know. And I consider him a friend, a true friend. And, um, you know, I, I I didn't see it that way. And we're at a standpoint where it literally it's, it's like, if you're, if you're this, you know, if, if you're not this, then you're this. And there, there is no, there is no compromise. There is no middle ground and we need to figure it out quick. Uh, because many things around our country and our state and our communities depend on us figuring it out quick. And sadly, I think it's, it is uh, the deep state or whatever you want to call it. I think it's the bigger picture to keep us divided. I, I think that if you study people like Cloward and Piven, Saul Alinsky, all the way yeah. back to Marx, that that is the intended goal. They want to keep as much division as possible because that progresses. That's where progressive comes from, mm-hmm. the agenda. But thank you so much, Will. I appreciate you coming on the program, and we, of course, wish you the best. Yeah, thank you, Caleb, and I hope you have a blessed day, and uh, I look forward to talking to you again. All right, same to you. Have a good one. Yeah, you too. Bye. Bye. All right. As we said, that was Will Dismukes of District 88, a representative here in the State House uh, for the state of Alabama, and we will be back in just a minute on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much for being with us. Our chaplain's report today, it's going to be a continuation of the series that we've been doing in 1 Samuel. And you may recall, if you were watching the chaplain's report from yesterday, that 
what the the episode that we're sort of watching unfold in Israel right now is that Israel is getting ready. They are prepared for battle. They've gathered together. King Saul has all of his troops ready to go. They're about to go and face the Philistines. And all of a sudden, without anybody noticing, his son, Jonathan, the prince of Israel, and his armor bearer just kind of sneak off on their own. And Jonathan, with a great show of courage and faith that we talked a lot about yesterday, decides that he is going to go up and walk literally straight into the enemy camp and see if God will allow him to negotiate his way into a settlement or something like that. And he says going into it that he already understands that the Lord has delivered them into his hand, and maybe he'll deliver Israel by what's going on now, or he may deliver Israel through just having them win the battle. But either way, Jonathan is able to do this because he has that confidence that God is going to take care of him. And here we see sort of the outcome, the results of that decision that he made. So we'll go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 11 through 13 where he says, When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor-bearer, and said, Come up to us, and we will tell you something. And Jonathan said to his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, with his armor-bearer behind him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer put some to death after him. So here's a pretty good example of Jonathan and his great faith and courage, and the only way that I know to describe it, the best way to describe it, I would say boldness. His boldness actually winds up paying off. Jonathan goes off on his own, having nothing but his armor bearer at his side, and faith that God is going to protect him as he walks into a camp filled with his enemies. You know, I was actually just recently reading through the book of Psalms, and I hit the 23rd Psalm like two or three days ago, and that line in the 23rd Psalm that frankly sometimes I just kind of overlook, not because I think it's insignificant, but because I just focus so much on the rest of that Psalm that David wrote, of course David being Jonathan's best friend, and you can kind of see the similarities there, is that God prepares a table for me in front of my enemies. And the sentiment that is reflected in David's 23rd Psalm, and I genuinely wonder if maybe that particular part of the psalm was inspired by his best friend's exploits at this particular time, that basically there is no place that is too dangerous for you to go when God is there. Now, I think that God also expects us to be intelligent and wise and smart. I think those are all true things as well. But the point is, if God's on our side, we really don't have anybody on this earth that we have to fear. We don't have to fear other men taking advantage of us. We don't have to fear even something as horrible as physical worldly death, because God is going to ultimately be on our side regardless. In fact, in the New Testament, it really harps on this as well, especially, for example, like at the book of James, that we don't even really have to fear municip or municipalities, principalities. <laughs> I almost used the wrong word there. Uh, we don't have to fear municipalities either, but <laughs> principalities, demons, even sort of spiritual enemies, those things are all nothing. They pale in comparison to God's power, and as long as we are doing what he asks us to do, as long as we are following him and in his favor, 
then we could have the kind of faith and boldness that Jonathan has to march right into the enemy camp and be confident that we're going to be okay. And you really see that on display in this passage where when they call Jonathan, they hail him and say, okay, come on up into our camp. Jonathan's like, oh, yeah, we've got it. Definitely, this is a sign that God has delivered them into our hands. Because you'll remember in the previous passage that we read yesterday, that he said, well, if they tell us to, to go on, then we'll go up to them anyway. But if they call us and they call us to come into their camp, that's the sign that God has already delivered the Philistines into the hands of Israel. So he's already very confident with this. And I think that the best way to really look at this story and understand it is, let's try to look at the outcome of this story through two different perspectives. Let's first look at it from the world's perspective, because that gives us an accurate perspective of what the world would want Jonathan to think in this situation. Well, the first thing the world would say is, don't do it. The first thing the world would say is, look, not only would it be very foolish for anybody of the enemy camp, in this case, the Philistines' enemies, Israel, to walk into the camp of those who they are about to go to war with, not only is that foolhardy, but that's especially true when you're the son of the king, the man leading the attack. You could very easily be captured and be using as leverage or some kind of bargaining token to give the Philistines a great advantage or, or maybe even cost the lives of Israelites. And yet Jonathan has such confidence in God and that he has already determined ahead of time what the outcome of the battle is going to be. He has already determined ahead of time the time of, of Jonathan's death and that he already has decided that Israel is going to win this fight. Jonathan's like, yeah, let's go ahead. Let's just walk right in there and maybe the Lord will deliver us this way. And what's funny is the result is even better than Jonathan was expecting. Because what Jonathan was expecting, presumably based on the context of this scripture, is that he was going to walk in there and negotiate some kind of deal, that he was going to, you know, figure out some kind of way for them to take advantage of them in the battle. But Jonathan never expected for this to essentially be the killing blow. Jonathan never expected for them to invite him in and be terrified thinking that the Hebrews, the Israelites, are all hiding in the crevices of the crag, the mountains there around him, like Jonathan just came out of. See, they're on this negotiation thing that they're doing right here, thinking that they are currently, their garrison is completely surrounded by Hebrews in hiding, when really the only Hebrews there are Jonathan and his armor bearer. And I absolutely believe that that rumor mill was, if not started by, at least expounded upon or made more of a threat by God's providence. I don't know that for sure. I don't know if God like planted that idea in one Philistine's head and then it just kind of spread like wildfire or how that works. But I find it hard to believe that providence didn't play a role in that in some way. And so here we have a really, really good example of Jonathan just deciding that he's going to do what God wants him to do. And not only does it have results similar to what he already thought. Now, keep in mind, Jonathan was a very faithful person. He's a very optimistic person, at least in regards to this one particular uh, story, that he's very confident that God is going to deliver Israel. 
I don't think even Jonathan thought that it was going to be this good. Even he didn't expect results that were this beneficial to Israel to where basically Jonathan and his armor bearer by themselves pretty much win the battle. And an entire garrison of Philistines flee in fear. And I think that that also illustrates a truth that is is just as relevant to us today as it was to Jonathan thousands of years ago. That when you're following the Lord, even if you are a faithful person, even if you believe that God is going to make it all work out, even if you are somebody that diligently seeks after Him, Sometimes God gives you a win that is so big, even you couldn't imagine how good it was going to be. Now, I'm not a preacher of the prosperity gospel, and I don't think that this story is illustrating, oh, well, as long as you're doing something in the name of God, that you'll be able to accomplish anything that you want. Well, no, that's a little different here, because Jonathan already knew that God had already given the charge to Israel to win this battle, and so it wasn't like Jonathan was just like, I'm going to be the world's greatest basketball player in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. He wasn't misappropriating God's uh, message here. He wasn't treating God as some kind of cosmic gumball machine to where if I do all these things exactly the way God wants me to, he's going to give me what I want. No, Jonathan was doing this because it's what God wanted, and he was already confident that God wanted Israel to be able to triumph and to deliver them from their enemies. And as a result of that, the results of his faithfulness, God rewards his faithfulness and his courage to an extent that is so great, even Jonathan didn't think that it could be that good. Even Jonathan wasn't expecting to essentially be the sole person that drove the Philistines out, that he didn't even have to negotiate and, you know, give something up in order for them to reach this deal. They just basically got everything and walked away with it scot-free, despite the fact that it was all based on something a fear that had been stirred up in the Philistine camp that didn't even exist. Thinking that they were surrounded when the truth is the only Hebrew within, you know, earshot, presumably, would have been Jonathan and his armor bearer. And so, when we go forward trying to do what God wants us to do, let's also be aware of the fact and, and really sort of be grateful for and take solace in that our God is a great God that can bring about results that even we didn't see coming, that even we couldn't have imagined. And one other big point that I want to bring up, and, and this speaks to Jonathan's motivation, I want you to notice there at the tail end of verse 12, where um, he says that the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. That shows a great deal of humility. Jonathan didn't say, well, God has delivered my enemies into my hands. Would that have been accurate? Yes. Would Jonathan have been sinning in saying that? I don't think so. I mean, David says that often. We see other kings of Israel saying, God has delivered the enemies into my hands. That's not an incorrect thing. But it shows a great deal of humility that Prince Jonathan, who basically just won the battle for Israel by himself, looks around and he's like, wow, God has really delivered the enemies into Israel's hands. Jonathan got that it wasn't about him. Jonathan looks around and sees this is a victory for Israel, not for Jonathan. And I think that that really speaks to his mindset and, and something that we need to emulate as well, that when something goes our way, especially if it's something that it's very clear that God's providence has had some part to play in it, that it's obvious that God has done something for us, that we look at that, that's a great victory for the kingdom. 
That is a great victory for the church. When a soul is won or something like that, wow, this, this is such a great victory for Christ that has been done through me. Not by me, through me. And I think that that's a mindset that will really help us in our walk with Christ. But ultimately, I think sort of the, the message, the overall arching theme of this story is there is no enemy that is too big for God to conquer. You're not going to see an army that God cannot overtake without really a whole lot of effort. Basically, God put out the minimum amount of effort here and just happened to use Jonathan, who was faithful in doing the right thing, as the instrument to have that accomplished. That when we have God on our side, when we're on God's side, we really don't have to worry about what everyone else is doing. We're not all that concerned with how much of the deck is stacked against us, because ultimately we, we know that God is going to be with us and he's going to bless our endeavors if we are doing the things that he wants us to do. That's the kicker. That's the part that sometimes people miss. That just like Jonathan, when we go out into a spiritual battle, that God is always going to have our back and that he is a far greater reinforcement than any army, any force. As much as I love and revere the United States military, if I had to choose between having all the branches of the military, including the Space Force, if I had to choose between having all of them at my back with all the missiles and fighter jets and drones and everything else, or having God on my side, I'd still pick God. Most powerful fighting force in the history of mankind, yeah, God really wouldn't have much of a problem overturning them like that. Not a big deal. Having that kind of awareness and boldness and faith is really what should set us apart from everyone else, shouldn't it? I get that in the world today there's a lot of anxiety, there's a lot of unknowns, and, and that's understandable to a degree. But ultimately, I do think that we are called to a spirit of courage and not a spirit of fear. And if we're doing the kinds of things that God wants us to do and we realize that God is on our side, that's why that anxiety should go away. That's why we should have this sort of peace that passes all understanding. I mean, if there was ever a biblical example of that, I think this story from the life of Jonathan is a pretty good indication of a peace that passes worldly understanding. So we need to look at situations like this as Jonathan saw them, through God's eyes. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt, only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.